welcome to ALSB's Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Eric Sater of Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. Join me as we hear from Academy of Legal Studies and Business teachers and scholars as to tips, tricks, and lessons learned in the classroom and beyond. ALSB focuses on the fields of business law, legal environment, and law-related courses outside of professional law schools. This cast is hosted by ALSB's teaching and pedagogy section. Let's spring into action with our spring episode featuring Professor Emerita Catherine Baird, who brings her extensive experience in the teaching of ethics to give us a nice overview of where to begin. With special emphasis on those with legal backgrounds, she discusses the general context of law and ethics classes, the relationship between law and ethics, and spends substantial time sharing her model and thoughts as to how to teach ethics effectively in a classroom setting. She explores challenges, structures, and supports. Welcome aboard. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Today is March 24th, 2022. We've had a little bit of a gap since our last recording, including a spring break for many of us. But now we're back in the saddle, and I am super pleased to actually have a fellow officer of the teaching and pedagogy section here tonight, uh, Catherine Baird, who also has her law degree like most of us here, and is the founder and CEO of Ethics Game, Professor Emerita at Regis University, having taught well over 20 years and continues to be very active in the field, developing all sorts of great pedagogical techniques. Uh, I know today she will be discussing specifically the teaching of ethics and how many of us lawyers can use law uh, to kind of employ in that methodology. So I'm just gonna turn it over to Catherine uh, and let her have the show today. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you so much, Eric. It really is a privilege to be able to have this conversation with you and other colleagues who teach law and ethics. And my expectation is that many of us have had the same path. Um, I started teaching, was hired by Regis University to teach law some 40 years ago, so I've been doing this for a very long time started teaching with the expectation that I would be teaching law, perfectly qualified to do that. And my first class was law and ethics. And the question becomes, what do I do with this? I am not a trained philosopher. I am not a trained ethicist. And there it is. Now, in the 40 years I've been hanging out in our discipline, I know that ethics gets put into many a law class, many a um, legal society class. It tends to be a a home for this particular discipline. So I'd like to talk today a little bit about some of the tricks I've learned over the years about how to really effectively embed ethics within a legal class and talk about the differences of perspective and uh, the differences of the project that we have with the two disciplines. So as we begin to take a look at how one embeds ethics in a legal class, Many of our textbooks start off with a chapter somewhere in the first two or three chapters on ethics. They lay out four to six different theories of ethics and say, this is sort of what's been happening over the past couple hundred years. None of them really give us a great answer on how we should live, which of course is the question that ethics asks. And then they say, well, let's just go and follow the law. What we're gonna do is the law becomes our, our benchmark. Well, I came of age during the civil rights movement of the 60s, 70s. I was part of the second wave of feminism that was doing a tremendous amount of work. Um, Some of my first gigs were on uh, teaching on affirmative action and making moves in that direction. 
and uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. The time from 1970 to 1990 was a great sea change in what was and was not legal. And I was really clear that being on the forefront of that, that the law itself is not an answer. So if we are raising and training our, our students that the law becomes a benchmark, the lines move. Now we've seen the lines move during COVID, for example, in terms of what is acceptable behavior, how we're going to be doing um, hospital visits in particular. And so what I wanted my business learners to know is how to anticipate the future and how to respond ethically to the very changing community and expectations that we have. And so I'd like to talk today a little bit about how I started to frame that conversation and hope that you will find it of value. As I began to teach ethics, the question that I asked, because I am a slow learner around this manner, matter, was, is there a conversation that every ethicist is having? Is there something that is sort of a meta-ethics, I now know would be the word, that would hold it together? And it turns out the answer is yes. Seven years, by the way, this was by tenure application. Um, the first conversation that every ethics conversation has is what is the relationship between the prerogatives and responsibilities of the individual and the prerogatives and the responsibilities of the community? We are people in community. And so one of the things the community has to do is to both limit individualism and limit community infringement. If we don't limit the individual, we wind up with anarchy where people just do whatever they want. They don't care what the rules are and your community falls apart completely. If, however, you err too much on the community side, you wind up with people freeloading and not taking responsibilities for themselves. So one of the first benchmarks, if you will, or bumpers that the law has to put in place is how do we make sure that we do not have anarchy, that there is a rule of law, as we call it, that people follow? And then how do we make sure that in the community people take responsibility for themselves as well as engage in the process of figuring out how to live for themselves? The second conversation was between your head and your heart, rationality and sensibility. When do we follow processes and rules and laws that have all of these things in place to guide us in how we should live together? And when do we let experience and freedom just sort of be the guide of the day? And again, if we have too much rationality, you wind up with rigidity where nobody knows what to do. You have these little processes that become, are, uh, have to be followed. And if any of you have ever done work in administrative law, which was actually the place where I did my, most of my work, you know that you can write rule after rule after rule and people will find a way to get right on the edge of it. So all the rules of the world will not guarantee people will do the right thing. Again, if you don't have enough structure, you wind up with chaos where people don't know what to do. I remember once when I was um, division director of our, of our small little 20-member uh, team, and I had a brand new faculty member who came in and said, you know, I don't think I want to use the syllabus. I want the class to grow organically. And I said, oh, that is a really bad idea. And she, oh, no, I want the students to have agency and ownership. Uh, two weeks into the class, she goes, okay, you were right. I was wrong. Now what do I do? And as I tell beginning teachers, it's so much easier to start with more structure than you want and ease up than it is to start with no structure and try to impose it after a class gets going. So if we think of the law then as providing the boundaries for what you have to do in community to stay in community. If you want to be part of this community, these are the basic kinds of things you have to follow. Ethics 
is everything in the middle. As I said earlier, ethics has two conversations, the relationship of the individual to the community and the relationship of head to the heart. And it turns out that the major ethical theories that we teach have a privilege or emphasize one of those over the other. And in the work that I've done with ethics, what we want students to do is to be able to figure out, first of all, what's their basic approach to ethics? Where do they feel comfortable? But then how they use the tools of these four ethical approaches in order to make really good decisions. So the term we're often familiar with is deontology. We're going to have the duty of the duty of human beings. And it turns out that all of our good deontologists say, what we want to do is have individuals use their reason to determine the principles by which they are going to live. Now, deontological thinking is the cornerstone of all contracts. We come together, we figure out what we want to do, we have a meeting of the minds, we negotiate together what is important. But just like the law cannot manage every eventuality, in contracts, you all know, we all know that you have to have a measure of trust. And that measure of trust comes out of the ethical commitment to a principle of integrity, of keeping your word, of not trying to find the edges of ways out, but that whole notion of trustworthiness and honesty. And that becomes sort of the ethical bulwark, if you will, of deontology. The next ethical theory we run into is consequentialism, which by the way, gets a really bad name, which is sort of odd because it's the organizing ethical principle of the United States. Our constitution is grounded in um, consequentialism, declaration of independence, and a free market economy is grounded in the ethical principles of consequentialism. The notion that individuals following their heart's desires to make choices that allow them to thrive and grow as individuals. Now, I talk about this as you vote with your feet. I remember back when we were first introducing online classes at Regis, we were one of the leaders. And um, the question was, are we going to have 15 week classes or eight week classes? And we were starting to play with both, both modalities. And I had a student who wrote an entire suite of papers on how unethical it was to move to eight week classes. You weren't gonna get the same content, whole litany. And I said, well, the thing of it is, is that a university is very much like in any other business, you guys will vote with your feet. You will vote based on what you sign up for. And sure enough, within three semesters, if nobody was signing up for 15 week classes, everybody was signing up for eight week classes. And no matter what anybody thought about the ethicality of changing modalities, the customer, the student had chosen. And so as we begin to watch people voting with your feet, you have to pay attention to changes in the moods of the consumers, changes in the moods of your employees, changing your own desires. And so we have flexibility, responsiveness to our stakeholders as individuals follow their heart's desire to decide how they will, of course, going to thrive. Now, moving over to the community side, you wind up with members of the community coming together in order to determine the processes that are going to be followed to reach justice. This is our justice theories of life. And in most ethics books in, in the um, organization or in, in B-schools, justice theories aren't included, but in fact, it's the whole canon of law. For in a very real sense, when we begin to teach procedural justice, substantive justice, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, social responsibility, we are in fact teaching justice ethics. 
How do we in fact take together the community in order to come up with the systems of justice? And so conversations such as who has access to information? How do we make sure people without resources are able to access healthcare, employment, housing, education? All of those things that we play with in the traditional legal setting are put in the context of laws, but without the underlying social contract that goes with those laws. One of the things that some of you who may have followed my work know that I'm a great fan of Tom Donaldson and Tom Dunphy and the whole notion they have around social contract with businesses. The notion is that if you want to do business to the United States, then you have to honor the social contract of the United States. And if you are doing business in Europe or Asia or India, you have to understand the micro social norms, as they call them, of those communities as you're being able to do business. The final way that the quadrants get played out is with what we call virtue ethics or what the ethics game calls the reputation lens. And this is where members of the community determine together what counts for standards of excellence. And these are determined in conversation. So we have the notion when I moved from teaching or from practicing law into teaching of having to have a conversation with myself. What's the difference between what counts for excellence as a litigator, which is what I was versus excellence as an educator. A, a very sad story that I tell on myself is that early on at Regis, a visiting philosopher came early in my tenure and I disagreed with the premise. And so I began cross-examination and my Dean took me aside and said, Catherine, we do not cross-examine visiting, visiting colleagues. And I then learned the proper way of doing it seemingly very politely, but just as cutting. We have a whole practice of doing that as educators. And so as we learn to listen to each other about what counts for excellence, our learners then need to figure out how do they live into the best versions of themselves? As they move into the organizations, what does that look like? And of course, the business roundtable has now come into existence where you had 150 or so organizations say, we are pledging with each other that this is how we are going to live into ethical excellence as businesses. So what does that mean as we begin to merge these together? Our students come and we then go into our canons of contracts and all of the rest of these things. And what the opportunity is, is to help students see that the law becomes a framework for the kind of behaviors that they have in business that are myriad in terms of how they can apply them. And what I think I would like students to do is to learn how to ask questions from each one of these perspectives that help clarify for them what their perceived obligations and duties are. So for example, as you start with the results lens, what you want people to say is, what are we trying to accomplish? What do we need as an organization? What do individuals within our organization need? And what do our customers need? And begin to have, again, that vision that what of the future of what we want to live into that. As we are seeking these goals, what are the obligations that we have? What are the principles that are really important to us? What are the spoken contracts we have we have to honor? What are our unspoken contracts? How do we begin to see how we can have consistency in the way that we work with people? 
And then moving into the community side, what are the obligations that we have to the community? How do we make sure that we in fact are supporting justice as opposed to not? How do we include the marginalized? How do we include those without power, without voice? How do we care for our environment? And then into the other one is how do we then become exemplars, moral influencers in the world of business for the community as a whole? And what I have found is if we think of ethics as a series of questions to be asked rather than a set of rules to be followed, that we equip our learners to move and to grow ethically. There's a body of work out there that talks about what our responsibility as educators, especially at the undergraduate level is in terms of ethical development. What the research shows is that when college, when high school seniors come to us, they have a very thought out process of black and white, unreflective black and white commitments. They know what they've been told, they know what they've had to do, but they don't know why they're holding them. They don't know what they're supposed to do with them, but they're very clear about right and wrong. After being with us, the goal is to have a commitment to and comfortableness in what I call reflective ambiguity. Are we able to watch and to see the different circumstances in which we are going to be conducting business, have a sense of the core principles that we're going to hold to, and then be able to think about why we're doing what we're doing, to be able to live in the tension of disagreement, and then to be able to fashion new, innovative, creative ideas about how to respond to and live into these new opportunities. We've just been through a marvelous two-year experiment in how to deal with reflective ambiguity. When COVID struck, we all remember going back to March of two years ago when classes were abruptly stopped. And all of a sudden we had to flex into whole new ways of being. Businesses had to figure out how they were going to do business. And many of my uh, friends in the business community found new ways of delivering their products, new ways of creating their products, new ways of dealing with a disruptive supply chain. And many, many were able to thrive in a time when people thought they were not going to be able to thrive. And those who were able to thrive were able to say, what's going on? What's our mission? What's our goal? What are our agreements that we have to keep with our employees, with our customers? How can we meet this emerging social need and how can we do this as a good leader? And by focusing on those four core ethical questions, they were able to flex into a new business setting and really grow. So how do we, how do we begin to then translate this sort of overarching thought of teaching students how to live with these big questions into a curricular setting? Well, I teach and submit that every person in fact teaches ethics even if they don't think they teach ethics. And they teach ethics by the way they model and conduct the class. In every class, whether it be a business law with ethics or just a law or constitutional law, whatever it is, we want to invite the students to be the best versions of themselves when they come to the classroom. I did a, a workshop this morning with students from another university and this faculty member said, how has COVID changed the way students come to the classroom? And I said, the opportunities for cheating and for cutting corners have never been greater. As you come, and I said, I'm looking at a screen full of black squares with names. I have no idea if you're listening, not listening. I have no idea what you're doing. And so your work ethic and your commitment to being in this class 
are going to be determined personally. I have no control over it. And so as you live into the best version of yourself, are you taking advantage of this opportunity? Are you trying to cut your corners? And then I told the story of a colleague of mine, bless her heart, who was engaging in a writing conversation with me at the same time she had in the background a continuing legal, a continuing education um, running. And she would poke the button at the appropriate time. I said, what are you doing? Well, I have to do this class and I'm just letting it run. And I said, is that an ethical concern for you? And she sort of laughs at, let's not talk about it. So as we invite learners to be the best expression of themselves, we can ask them in the context of this conversation, what is your vision for how you want to live in the world? As you think about contract law, as you think about employment law, as you think about constitutional law, and even um, the, you know, some of the other more obscure codes, what does this mean for you? What, what does it give you in terms of security and moving forward? How do you see organizations living into their missions? What does this structure provide for them? And where do they find the times that they can cut corners versus live into their best self? And then we move them into a global context. What we know from learning is if you start with the particular and move then to the larger that students can begin to imagine those outgoing ripples, if you will, of um, complexity and begin to have some, some tools for them. So in every conversation we have, rather than just teaching the black and white letter of the law or showing where the lines changed, invite the learners into how does this affect you personally? How does this affect you as a, as a leader? How does this affect you within the business community? And then we notice the structure that we provide. Now, over my years, I have watched syllabi go from two pages to 25 pages as people have added layers and layers and layers of things. How does that syllabus provide a structure within which you can have freedom in the class? Because what the laws do, if we think about it, is provide the structure for a community that they can then have the freedom to innovate and the freedom to do business within their own understandings of the mission. The notion becomes, as people become more personally responsible, the external structure of the law is not needed as much. And so again, we see this um, with freshmen where you have to detail everything around um, social responsibility and cheating. And we hope by the time they're seniors that they understand what it means to be part of a learning community and living into their ethical responsibilities as learners. Now, that's the vision and I know sometimes that we don't get there, but I would submit the seniors are better at it than freshmen because they have, if they're lucky, some practice in doing it. And then of course, we can talk about personal responsibility. How do we not micromanage? How do we live into our own sense of what we're going to do and how we're going to contribute to the world as a whole? And then the last thing that we provide as educators is what I call support. And this is noticing that each one of our learners is at a different level of development and using however we meet with them, whether it be in our office hours or the way they're doing their papers, how they're responding to, to questions, whatever it might be, gently challenging them to take where they are and moving just a little bit further. Uh, Regis is a Regis business program. It's a relatively tiny program. In, and so we learned the names of our students and I had them you know, two or three times over the course of, a, of um, my tenure there. And I remember one student in particular, we were doing a capstone course in economic justice. And he disagreed with the basic premise 
that we had to live in a shared economy, that we had depended on each other, and that as we look at economic justice, nobody can live by themselves. He was a rabid Ayn Rand fan. He was clear he could do it on his own, and there it was. Well, about halfway through the semester, he disappeared. And I was sort of I was sort of worried about him and wondering, you know, what was going on and sort of, you know, put my feelers out, what's going on with the student. And about three to four weeks later, he shows up back in class and his first statement to me was, Dr. Baird, you're right. And I said, okay, what am I right about? He said, I cannot live by myself. I have missed class because I was very, very sick. And but for friends who came and helped me, took care of me, made sure I got to the doctor, I literally would have died. All right, you're right. Now, I did not have in my syllabus getting deathly ill in the middle of a class, but that experience for that learner provided a teaching opportunity to move him to the next level of understanding about what life in community is. And so part of what we do with our learners is if you've got people struggling and trying to grow and find their voice, you find opportunities for them to find their voice. You find opportunities to reinforce the choices they're made. If you've got students who are, are playing the edges, you find opportunities to clip their wings a little bit and bring them in and use the classroom structure as a way both to model ethical excellence in the profession of teaching, discuss it within the context of the law, and then practice it within the context of the class. And as we think of our classes as incubators, if you will, for ethical excellence, then we begin to find ways to model that which we are teaching, as well as we support and equip students to move forward. We cannot give students the worst case st stories of CEOs who fall off the map because they're doing badly and have them resonate with them at all. They need to know what do we do when I go and the first thing I'm asked to do is to falsify my, my timesheets. What do I do when the first thing I'm asked to do is to not put in a change order? How do I handle these little small things in order to build the capacity and the courage to act in the larger things? And so if we think about our classrooms as providing that kind of incubation, we in fact can take our students from coming to us black and white, rigid, following the laws, to help them learn how to live within the ethical principles of being mindful of the agreements they have and what they need to do to live into them. Understanding that there are processes and procedures and guidelines for everything they're going to do, but within those agreements and the process, they have to exercise what we call prudential judgment. When do I do this with a heavy hand when do I do this with a light hand? When do I flex because the circumstances have changed? And when do I move ahead and say, I'm sorry, this is the way it is. And then the final thing that the ethics teaches them is how to exercise discretion. When do they begin to move forward in a way that makes some sense? When do they hold their tongue? When do they let things just unfold? I had dinner with a really good friend last night who was beside herself because she has a member of her team who is self-destructing. And this member of the team is making choices that are leading her to the edge of termination. And my friend, because she lives in the virtue ethics lens, believes it is her responsibility to save everybody. And I kept telling her that everybody has a right to fail, that people have a right to make choices and that you some days cannot rescue them. 
And you and I know that as educators, we have students who come in who don't belong in our classes, don't want to be at school and manage against every shred of help we give them to fail. And so how do we exercise discretion about knowing when someone needs an extra hand, that they need some extra support, or when they need to just be able to fail on their own? As we teach people how to be mindful of their agreements, how to live into sane processes, how to exercise judgment and exercise discretion, we are educating them in building their capacity to be ethical decision makers and ethical parts of our community. And so that would be the um, just a snippet of advice or things to think about in the way that classes get structured and the way that we think about how we fold ethics into a legal conversation. So Eric, with that sort of um, introduction, any questions or thoughts of reflection that you would like to play with for a bit? Well, the fun thing about interviewing educators, especially good educators, is they do such a good job talking, there's not a whole lot of follow-up all the time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, in terms of you touch an online teaching syllabus, you know, all sorts of good stuff that I feel like you identified and explained quite well. So my only questions are potentially not the fairest, but I will go ahead and pose them anyways, uh, because you got me thinking a little bit and you have uh, more years of experience than I do, at least in this arena. But you, when you were talking about that student who was a little difficult before getting sick, uh, I just had a, a discussion in my class on the gender kind of uh, wage gap. Mm -hmm. And one of the students, after I presented all of this research, all of this information, he in a write-up simply says, well, it's a hoax. It's a hoax. And a YouTube video told me about it. So I was trying to get to that point of reflection of, so what do we do about it? Does it matter? Is it important? But if you don't even agree with the underlying premises, mm -hmm. um, what do we do with those really tough students? Do we pay attention to it? Do we hope they come around? Um, yeah, what do you think uh, in, in such a scenario? Well, I think that there's a point where we can get wrapped around the axle trying to get them to think differently. I could have worked with my student and tried to browbeat him into realizing Ayn Rand was wrong. And as I am fond of saying, the universe took care of it. Um, he, in his life, wound up with circumstances where he had to confront his beliefs on his own time and on his own dime. So your learner who, does, who thinks that the wage gap is a hoax will wind up with a wife, a daughter, a mother or somebody where that comes to to them in living color and then they'll have to decide is my experience of this injustice real or is what i saw on youtube real right. and we have no idea when those moments will come um, one of the stories that i tell about myself is that when i went to pacific lutheran university i came out of an evangelical tradition i went to my religious studies class and then the first two weeks the prof said um, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, were not written by Moses. They were written over a 2,000-year period. Now, as a learner, that was totally against what I believed. And I took the entire rest of the semester to grapple with that idea while the prof moved on to who knows what else in that class. We don't know when a student is going to have one of those moments in our class. We don't know when a core belief is going to be challenged to the degree that it takes them an entire semester to figure out where they are. All we can do is give them the tools, and we say this so glibly, the tools of critical thinking and reflection, that as they engage in the process, they have some idea and some support. 
Now, it never occurred to me as a freshman to go to the professor and say, could you please help me understand what's going on? I didn't have enough self-confidence. I didn't have enough courage. I finally got there. And that's part of the growth that we have as, as faculty. The other part that we have to understand is that not all of us resonate with every student. One of the things I found is that I would have students who would have these sort of really disruptive moments in the classroom, and they would go to a friend of mine, a colleague down the hall to discuss them. So again, I think what we do is when we have a disruptive idea and then we have someone who dis disagrees with us, we just sort of let it be. And don't, you press a point a little bit, but then let it be and let the rest of the learning, let the rest of the context, let life begin to decide how that person's going to respond. Great. But I think one more thing before I move on. Yeah. In that moment, we have the opportunity to treat that different idea with respect. In that moment, we have the opportunity to not make the human being as a human being wrong, as much as say, I understand that's what you've read. I understand what that's what you believe. I just invite you to take a look at if you get other evidence to see what that might mean and be respectful. Awesome, thanks Catherine. How about, uh, I taught a few years uh, prior to a business school mm -hmm. and I didn't know if you have a couple quick tips of I assume within your ethics game, et cetera, you sometimes have beyond at least an undergraduate business audience, but like right. well, what's unique about maybe undergraduate business students that we need to be considering in our pedagogical approaches? They have no experience. So the whole <laughs> ethics game grew because I started teaching graduate students and I said, okay, we have these four approaches to ethics. Mm -hmm. Each of them have different criteria and a different process. Take an ethical dilemma you have faced and just analyze it through these four different lenses and see what comes up. I then was tasked with teaching undergraduate business ethics, a standalone course, and there was no experience. And so part of the challenge we have with the undergraduates is how to use experiences that are close enough to them that they can see the relevance at the same time that we give them the business concepts that they need. So one of the tra uh, tactics I do with my undergrads is to have the references be to their academic um, groups. So when you're doing a group study, how does that work? And, and this is how it, it, it's a parallel out to the employment world. Your, your um, social groups, your clubs and organizations, your other leadership roles, your internships, and trying to take their experiences and then show the corollaries to the larger business enterprise. Now, the undergraduates are much more willing to engage in the conversation than people who have graduated. And so one of the things I find when I'm working with adult audiences and adult learners is they are much more ossified in their opinions and they want um, ethics by inoculation. Just come in, give me an hour, I'm gonna be a better person and go away. Where the undergraduates are much more willing to engage over a period of time with the questions. So we see that, that movement just because that's what they're there to do. So the two learners, as you well know, have really different characteristics that you have to be able to sort of address. Where are they experientially? Where are they developmentally? And then what need am I meeting in their life that I can somehow come to? Terrific. Well, I don't actually have uh, a whole lot of other questions today, unless uh, if there was anything you wanted to make sure that you conveyed, although you did a good job so far, you are welcome to have another few minutes. Uh, the cool thing about a podcast though, is you can always come back too in the future and share some more with us. The piece that I would um, remind people is that the, this discipline of educated, 
education and educating is in fact a discipline. And so my work was profoundly informed when I read Paula Ferrari's um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I realized that as a teacher, I could either do the banking method of teaching where I just sort of filled their heads and they flushed it out, or I could do transformational teaching. And as I moved into a commitment to transformational teaching where I was committed to students, not only knowing the material and being able to pass the CPA exams, but to have the tools that they needed to grow as human beings, my whole approach to teaching changed. And I found myself studying a lot about what are the best teaching techniques? How do I empower my learners? How do I make sure my content is there as I move forward? The other thing that happened early in my career was doing asynchronistic teaching. And with so many of the folks that I coached over the years wanted to be the smartest person in the room. They wanted to stand up and show everything they learned. And the students learned the game really quickly. They're going to um, puff up your egos. They will puff up you so that they don't ever have to get into the topic of the day or be called on. And so the dance that we can dance if we're not careful is having our egos fluffed up to the detriment of our learners. And so if we learn that our job is transformational teaching, equipping students to take our content to become the very best people they can be in the careers they have chosen, the way that we approach the project of teaching will be very, very different. And that's why I'm part of this group, because I am committed to the pedagogy end of it, the, the teaching side of it, and growing and developing our members at the ALSB into the best educators they can be not just the best researchers or the best lawyers. Well, I feel uh, re-energized and re-inspired. So I'm sure our listeners will as well. Uh, thanks again for being with us. I'm glad you spent the time with today. Thank you, Eric. It was really a privilege to share a little bit of wisdom. And if it helps somebody and energizes them, then it has been worth the time. Thank you. There you have it, folks, another episode for the record books. Much gratitude to our guest, Catherine Baird, and hopefully we'll have a return in the future. This was episode 1.5, focusing on lawyers teaching ethics of ALSB's Pedagogy Podcast. As a reminder, we're always looking for solo guests, panelists, production support, or simply ideas. So reach out to us over Anchor, Spotify, or direct to me, Eric Sater, at easater at iu.edu. That's E A S is in Sam, A D is in dog, E R, at IU.edu. And let us know how you would like to contribute. Stay well, stay safe, and have a bit of fun.